2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
3: Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show uh, to make this the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Uh, I want to also thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. They are, uh, for the second hour, uh, Crocodile Gold, Gold Bullion Development, North Atlantic Resources, Barkerville Gold, Great Panther Resources, and Millrock Resources. Well, I'm really delighted to have with me uh, today John Rubino. Uh, John is co-author with uh, Gold Money's James Turk uh, on a book that was written a few years ago uh, called The Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from It. Uh, and also, John is the author of *Clean Money: Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom*, uh, *How to Profit from the Coming Real Estate Bust*, and *Main Street, Not Wall Street*. Uh, after earning a financial, uh, a degree in finance and uh, an MBA, also from the New York University, uh, John spent the 1980s on Wall Street as a euro dollar trader, equity analyst, and junk bond analyst. And during the 1990s, he was a featured columnist with TheStreet.com and a frequent contributor to Individual Investor, Online Investor, and Consumers Digest, among many other publications. Welcome, John, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
4: Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me on.
3: Well, really great to have you. Now, you've escaped from the, from the dungeons of Wall Street to the West uh... out there where there's wide open spaces uh... I, I gather you're you're quite pleased to do so
4: oh yeah uh, we're, we're out in idaho now and, and i love it even though it's pretty snowy today it's uh... turned out to be a great place to live
3: and uh, probably a great place to bring up your kids i suppose maybe would have some advantages over the over the inner city
4: yeah that, that was kind of the point of the move we we have two sons and uh, i wanted them to grow up in a place where <laughs> Uh, they didn 't have a whole lot to worry about other than being kids and uh mm-hmm. so we we picked a college town in idaho and it 's worked out real well so far and uh, you know um, as, as you know uh if you 're a writer or um a media personality of any kind you you can do that anywhere now because of the internet, so it 's really letting people like you and me spread out. <laughs> we can live wherever we
3: want. No doubt about it, but I'm yeah. still here, stuck here in New York City in a way. I don't know if stuck's the right word because I do love the city. My wife oh, loves yeah. the city a lot. Uh, and so I guess it'd be sort of nice if you could do a little of both perhaps. And later in this show, actually, I'm going to be talking to Doug Casey who has a, uh, who, who is involved in building a development in Argentina, <laughs> a rather remote area that I think looks very, very attractive. But I, honestly, I, I think I would get bored if I were in the, in some sort of a country setting all the time. So I guess the You know, it takes all kinds of people, but I I definitely uh, could see the attraction of of, uh, the West. I love the West and the wide-open spaces of the West. Well, I said earlier today we don't have that much time for chatter, so I better stop chattering. And let's get into some of the issues that you discuss in your book. Uh, One question, uh, you know, we're really looking, I think we're looking at rates of inflation that are much, much more significant than what government says they are. What's your sense of it, John?
4: Oh, I, I think there's no doubt that they're lying to us about inflation. They they, they play a lot of statistical tricks with the data, and uh, a lot of it is kind of a black box. So we, we see inputs going in, and then there's something that comes out at the other end, and we don't know exactly what kind of massaging they're doing, but we do know that they... Uh, they play some statistical tricks that allow them to minimize the rate of inflation. And and they do that for a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of the U.S. economy is indexed. In other words, Social Security payments, for instance, uh, go up at at the rate of the Consumer Price Index. And so the government has to pay more, and its deficit gets bigger if inflation, as reported, is higher. So it's in their interest to minimize inflation from that point of view. And then uh, from the monetary authorities point of view higher inflation is the same thing as saying that the dollar is being badly managed so the central bankers of course want inflation to to look low and um, because of that and some other reasons they have a lot of incentive to basically lie to us about it and they're doing it and uh, it's not the kind of thing they can keep up for forever but for a while they can report low numbers even though most people experience higher rates of inflation in their lives and uh and and people tend to think well okay other prices must be going down if if my gasoline and my food are going up so maybe it all evens out but eventually we figure out that no other prices aren't going down everything is going up at varying rates but overall the cost of of living the cost of getting by for us is is going up at a a faster pace than they're telling us. And see, that that's an interesting point. When people figure that out, then inflationary psychology gets embedded in the economy. We start acting as if we expect prices to go up at an accelerating rate, which means we, um, we buy more than we need, we start hoarding stuff, and we start borrowing money because we know that uh, we'll be able to pay off our loans at... Um, lower and lower rates of uh, dollar exchange rates, in other words, with uh, diminished currency. And that distorts economic behavior, because uh, inflation benefits borrowers and penalizes savers, because if you're mm-hmm. a saver, the money you've got socked away goes down in value. So it, it changes the character of a country and mm-hmm. uh, for the worse because it's it's penalizing good behavior and and subsidizing bad behavior. So what you get is a really dramatic change in the uh in the culture for the worse and that's what we're headed for. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're on the verge of people picking up on this.
3: Well, John, it seems to me that this bad behavior is been encouraged through government policy for some time. We have uh you know, we've had distorted uh lower very very low interest rates as a result of Mr. Uh, Greenspan's easy monetary policies, and as a result of Mr. Bernanke's uh, monetary policies, we see uh, government encouraging people to spend. Uh, you know, when, whenever uh, people start to save, as they did a little bit after Lehman Brothers collapse, the main concern uh, that I hear of all the, the pundits on Wall Street is, oh, we've got to find a way to get the consumer back spending again. Uh, so is this, this isn't necessarily something new, is it?
4: Oh, no. You can go all the way back to the 1980s for uh, policies that have encouraged people to go into debt and to Mm -hmm. spend that money, because we we had this sense that uh, that was what really drove a modern economy, that you had to have consumers out there buying a lot of stuff, and that would create jobs and that would uh, pump up government tax revenues and make everything work. But in reality, um, a well-run modern society runs on savings. If we're all socking away a lot of money, then that lowers the cost of capital and allows people to invest in new productive capacity and, and produce real stuff. But we've mm-hmm. gotten so far away from that that we've, we've kind of turned the idea on its head. That now um, Now, for this system to survive, we need to take on ever greater amounts of debt at every level of society, whether it's the federal government or state and local governments or consumers. And we've got to use that debt in order to buy stuff and, and it, it creates a cycle in which debt goes up, debt service goes up, and then we have to lower interest rates and pump out even more money in order to get indebted consumers to be able to pay their interest and buy more stuff. And so, mm-hmm. the, you know, you, you can see the end point of this. It's when mm-hmm. everybody is so indebted that we collapse under the weight of all our debt, or mm-hmm. when the government... Um, becomes so desperate to keep the system going that it pumps out so much money that it destroys the value of the currency. And we're really at that crossroads right now. We, we seem to have chosen to try to inflate our way out of all this debt. So we're pumping out incredible amounts of money. We're running gigantic deficits. And uh, it remains to be seen whether a, uh, a huge but finite collapse in leverage can win out over a, uh, an infinite printing press. And we've never seen this in history before, where all the governments of the world had basically unlimited printing presses with fiat currencies. So we don't know how it's going to play out, but it has to play out one way or the other. Either we collapse under the weight of all our debt, go back to the 1930s-style depression, or we head into some kind of a global hyperinflation where all the fiat currencies of the world are being debased at accelerating rates, and, and we have all the distortions that come from that, which will eventually lead to a deflationary crash. So. Um it, it's not clear which of those we end up with but it, it is pretty clear that we're going to end up with one or the other before this decade is out.
3: I'm really glad to hear you say that John. Uh you know uh, I I feel the same way. It, there's no there's not going to be a soft easy landing although most of my friends on Wall Street, the people I know that are in the banking industry somehow think that 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 there will be a soft landing. Uh but I find it interesting that that you like myself uh don't have a clear-cut view of which way this thing is going to shake out. If we're going to see a deflationary implosion that clears the market or if we're going to see a hyperinflationary explosion that basically makes debt uh, not nearly as onerous to pay off and somehow we come out of that situation. Um, uh, Well, of the two, which is the worst? Uh,
4: Of of the two, hyperinflation is clearly a, a worse outcome. If, if you Why so? A, uh, well, first, if you, if you have a debt-driven deflation, that means a lot of malinvestment, a lot of bad debt gets wiped out, and things are really hard for a while, but you, you're bringing your balance sheet back into a sustainable balance, uh, you know, mm-hmm. where, where debt is reasonable. That's what happened in the 1930s, mm-hmm. um, and we came out of it in the, the 1940s and 1950s with, with a Decent balance sheet and and a culture that had uh, had been so traumatized by the depression that they were conservative financially.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, and, so, and they so, saved.
4: Yeah, yeah, they saved money, and when they did lend money, it was for really productive purposes. And they, they, you know, we controlled a lot of impulses, which made the culture um, maybe not as much fun as, as it became later, but it, it made the economy something that was on a, a sustainable footing. And mm-hmm. if we kept our 1950s-style financial attitudes, we'd be a lot healthier right now than we are. And uh, the flip side of that is is inflation, which, as we talked about, um, penalizes good behavior and subsidizes bad behavior, so you get a really dramatically negative change in the culture while all this is going on, because savers get wiped out, and borrowers have their their debts wiped out so they become basically enriched because they've got all the stuff they borrowed with uh, with those loans but the loans can be paid back with dollars that are worth virtually nothing Um, and it still in the end leads to a deflationary crash because you end up building up so much debt because you're encouraging people to borrow even more because they expect to be able to pay it back in in depreciated dollars that eventually the debt load becomes overwhelming and you still have a collapse. So if we succeed in inflating our way out of today's debt, we end up encouraging people to take on even bigger debts five years or ten years down the road and and then inevitably having some kind of a collapse out there that is worse than what we would have had if we just let it rip right now, you know, just stepped back and let Wall Street collapse and let the builders mm-hmm. collapse and, and uh, allow people who had, Accumulated a lot of cash to come in, buy those assets assets up cheaply, and then run them profitably. Mm-hmm. And it you know it appears that we're we're trying hard to choose the um, hyperinflationary um, scenario here because mm-hmm. polit- politicians see that as a way of getting through the day. You know, if you if you allow things to fall apart right now and have a deflationary crash, you're blamed for it. You know, you are this generation's Herbert Hoover, right. and obviously nobody wants that. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially a politician who cares about staying in office and who cares about their uh, their legacy. So they're doing the only thing that they see as possible to avoid that right now, which is to inflate mm-hmm. and run the printing presses. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to end up being a disaster later, but in, in their eyes, that's better than a disaster now because they'll be gone. <laughs> Somebody else will be in power mm-hmm. and have to
3: deal with it. Well, John, we've had uh, people on both sides of this issue, and, you know, many of them uh, many, many of them are definitely, uh, you know, one side or the other. We've had Ian Gordon, Robert Prechter, uh, Ms. Shedlack, some of those on the deflation side, we've had Ron Paul, we've had James Turk, uh, your partner, uh, on the inflationary side. Um, and, and I don't know, um, I'm not really sure, you know, why some people can see it so clearly one way or the other. If we could know. If I had a firm opinion about it, then it would make sense to go out and borrow, would it not? I mean, if you believed that you were 90%, you're 90, 100% sure you are going to have inflation or the inflationary route, then wouldn't it make sense to go out and borrow and pay off in cheaper dollars in the future?
4: Totally. If If you're 100% sure that inflation is coming, it's rational and logical to borrow as much as you can because, especially today's low interest rates, I mean, if somebody will lend you 30 year money, like with a mortgage, at four or five percent, and you think inflation is going to be 10 percent a year for the next 20 years, then basically you're getting a house for free, in effect. Yeah. yeah. And now the, the reason that, well, I mean, the, the biggest reason that, that I, I have trouble having an opinion about this is because, you know, all those guys you named who are on either side of this argument, they're a lot smarter than me. <laughs> and, and the fact that there are brilliant guys on, on both sides leads me to believe we're not there yet where it's obvious which which is going to happen yeah. and um so i i do think we're at the point where these forces are still very powerful on both sides and and um that it isn't completely clear which which wins in the end because these are really historically unprecedentedly powerful forces you know we've never had a deflationary Debt collapse that was this global, you know, that there, there was this much leverage all over the world that was in the process of being wiped out. We've never had governments with unlimited printing presses everywhere, mm-hmm. so so I don't so know the, at this point. Yeah.
3: so so we're really looking at uh, these are really new times. Uh, this is really a new experiment, certainly with with a totally uncontrolled uh, fiat money, with endless amounts of money that can be created by the World's Reserve. By the holder of the world's reserve currency, we are leading the way towards this inflationary, uh, inflationary bout. It seems to me.
4: Oh yeah, the U.S. and and for very clear historical reasons, you know, after World War II, we were the, the last remaining financial powerhouse, and so the world decided to use dollars as as the reserve currency, which basically gave us an unlimited credit card. And so that, that was fine for the 1950s generation, but the people who came after um, totally abused the, uh, the power that that credit card granted them. You know, we've basically been borrowing huge amounts of money because we could. You know, everybody in the world wanted dollars, which meant we could print as many dollars as we wanted, toss them out into the world, and people would give us real stuff for those dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that took away our need to prioritize. We could have... A trillion dollar a year global military empire with bases everywhere and the, the and, and a budget that was bigger than all the rest of the world's governments combined at the same time as creating um, very new, very expensive social programs. you know Social mm-hmm. Security and Medicare could just be expanded um, ad infinitum because we could print new dollars to pay for all of this and borrow as much as we needed and mm-hmm. um, so we were corrupted by this credit card that the rest of the world had given us. And so we spent the last 30 years maxing that credit card out. And now we're like the, you know, the family down the street with uh, an SUV in the driveway and a big screen TV in, inside their 4,000 square foot brand new house, uh and all of it on borrowed money. And so we look rich to the other people around us, but in fact, um, we're just a few days away from the repo man coming to take the uh, the Mercedes out of the driveway. Mm-hmm. And um, at at some point, the, um, the global financial version of that is going to happen to the U.S. The rest of the world is going to figure out that we're running a Ponzi scheme here. And they're going to um, lose interest in holding unlimited amounts of dollars. They're going to start to sell the dollars that they have. In other words, they're going to dr- dump Treasury securities on the market which will make U.S. interest rates go up because we won't be able to borrow as cheaply if nobody wants our treasury bonds. And once that happens, you hit a kind of a death spiral with our our kind of finances because we're, we're running um, short-term borrowing right now. The U.S. government has financed itself at extremely low short-term interest rates, which means we have to roll that paper over. And I think it's like $8 trillion a year right now that we have to roll over. Mm-hmm. And... If interest rates go up, then when we roll the paper over next, we have to pay higher rate. And our borrowing costs go through the roof, which means the U.S. budget deficit goes up, because that interest on our debt is a big chunk of the, the budget right now. Mm-hmm. And if our budget deficit goes up, that means the the dollar looks even weaker because we're, we're pumping so many new dollars out by borrowing more. And that makes the dollar less in, interesting to the rest of the world, which means our interest rates go up again because they'll demand an even higher interest rate, which causes our interest costs to go up. And, and so you get this cycle that we can't break because we don't have any tools left to, um, to pull us out of this because the, the only financial tools we have left are lower interest rates and the printing press. You take mm-hmm. that away, and all of a sudden we have to live within our means, which means mm-hmm. we have to cut, in the U.S., uh, what, $2 trillion a year or so out of the, uh, the budget, and more if you take into account the unfunded liabilities and Social Security and Medicare that are building up. So if we had to cut $2 trillion a year out of the government, which means it would then come out of the economy directly because government spending pumps up the economy, uh, we'd be right back into a depression. Mm -hmm. And so that is the limiting factor in the strategy of of running the printing press to inflate our way out of the debt. Mm -hmm. It only works as long as the rest of the world wants dollars. And as soon as the rest of the world figures out Mm -hmm. that dollars really aren't worth very much and, and bails on us, then we lose all the tools we have left and everything falls apart.
3: Well, John, that certainly is a major question right now is, uh, you know, how close is that repo man from coming to take that Mercedes out of our driveway, uh, as you put it? And, you know, as I look at the long term U.S. Treasury, uh, the the 30 year bond, we see a bull market that started in the early 1980s, and we saw uh, uh, probably what I think probably will be the peak. Uh, in the 30-year bond market, uh, following the Lehman Brothers uh, collapse and the and you know and the and the crisis that we had in 2008, 2009. But if I look at the long-term trend, I draw a line through the bottom of this upward trend in the 30-year bond market. It seems to me we're not there yet in terms of seeing that bull market be over. What are your thoughts?
4: Um, that we're not through with well, seems, the bull market and it, it bonds seemed, being over.
3: Yeah, it seems to me that we're still in a bull market, if you a long-term bull market in thirty-year Treasuries for the U.S. dollar, U.S. dollar Treasuries.
4: Well, I mean, that would be the deflationary argument. If if we head back into um, a deflationary crash and start looking mm-hmm. like the nineteen thirties again, then yeah, um, interest rates would go down from here.
3: Mm-hmm. But I mean, and- what I'm saying is, if I look at a long-term chart, if I you know, and I do, I look from Decision Point, I pull the chart up and you draw a line through the bottom you know this uptrend line for the 30-year treasuries not I'm not talking short-term I'm talking a really long-term trend line we're not uh, we're still it seems to me we're still on a bull market for treasuries you do you agree or disagree I know we're hearing a lot of talk about China uh, and other countries saying we've had enough already we don't want your dollar anymore but the chart tells me that that we're not in a bear market yet for treasuries and I know the people have tried to, you know, to short the treasuries have been burnt time and time and time again over the last number of years.
4: Yeah, I'm one of them. (laughs) It's only been working out lately. But, um, yeah, yeah, see, this is the the thing that that I have trouble um, developing a strong opinion about because Mm -hmm. it it could still go either way right now. You know, we we Mm -hmm. could um, drop back into um, a deflationary period and interest rates could go back down which means treasury prices could go back up so you could see the long bond um, jump back onto its bull market trajectory for a while longer or mm-hmm. you could see inflation pick up from here and that impact currencies and interest rates and then you could see um, long-term treasury rates spike because of inflation fears and which which is to say that long-term bonds would just get whacked from here and i don't know i uh, you know my my the bet that I've got on with, with some of our money is that uh, the Treasury bonds go down from here, which is to say U.S. interest rates keep rising. But uh, that bet is combined with you know long precious metals and short a lot of different kinds of stocks and things sure. like that so it's, yeah <laughs>
3: so Well, I just I just had a great uh, I don't know if it's a great idea I don't want to give myself that much credit but you said that a lot of those people that I named you know Congressman Paul James Turk and various people on the, on the inflation side and then miss Shedlack and Robert Prector and Ian Gordon on the deflation side are smarter than you are I'm not sure if that's true but I don't think it is true in fact but your partner James Turk I know is very certain about the inflation side of it and I thought wouldn't it be interesting the thought just occurred to me wouldn't it be interesting to have the two of you on to discuss this Uh, is that something you would entertain I know I know James 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 at one time would have loved to have uh, Robert Prechter on I haven't been able to arrange it to talk about the inflation deflation side because Prechter is as certain as Turk is uh, in his direction but, but what do you say? Would you like to do that sometime? You and James oh, yeah, could talk I'd, about yeah.
4: it? I'd, I'd love to be on with James.
3: He's, oh, that would be fun. A, I think maybe we'll guy, send friend, James an email and see if we can get him on. Sure. And, because James yeah. is very, very certain about this. And, you know, I talked to Ron Paul about this, and Ron is very certain about the inflation side and his argument. I mean, I told him, I said, well, you know, how if you're not going to get the money in the hands of the masses of people, you're going to keep bailing out Wall Street. You're going to keep getting the rich, keep getting richer because we're subsidizing bad behavior on Wall Street. Uh, Losers get rewarded and they keep their million dollar bonuses. Uh, But unless you get money in the hands of the masses, how are you going to do it? And Congressman Paul says, well, we have the mechanism in place now where we can do that through the tax code or, you know, just send people checks uh and we didn't have that during the 1930s but to me john i don't see that being something that even a democratic president like obama is that interested in doing they all seem to be really taking care of their banker friends first and foremost what are your thoughts
4: oh they're definitely taking care of the bankers first and foremost because uh, right now we we've devolved to the point where the the banking system and the government are really one organization Mm-hmm. And so you've got the Federal Reserve, the big banks, and the Treasury Department are really just departments. You know, they're, they're divisions of an organization that is running the U.S. economy. And so obviously they're going to take care of their own divisions because bankruptcy for one means bankruptcy for the others. But um, Ron Paul is right. We, we've got the mechanism in place where if we want to, because we're allowed to print unlimited dollars. For these guys, with mm-hmm. a mouse click right now. They can, they can input um, you know, a million dollars in someone's account. Click send, and it shows up there. So uh, let's, let, let's talk about a scenario where they could spread that money around Main Street if they wanted to. You know, say, say your house is half a million dollars underwater. You bought it for a million. It's a, now worth a half a million. You feel stupid and poor, and so you're spending less because of that. And that's bad. They want you to spend more. So they could come in and say, well, you know what? Fannie Mae will buy your house for a million and five. Mm-hmm. And they click send, and you have a million five in your bank account. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you don't feel stupid anymore. You feel um, you feel brilliant and rich. And so you're going to go out and spend some of that money. And so you uh, you accomplish what they, they want you to accomplish by pumping up the economy and buying stuff. And they've done it with make-believe money. It was just a mouse click. Mm-hmm. It cost them nothing. And as long as people want dollars, they can do that. And so mm-hmm. a, a desperate government that's seeing, let's say, Illinois and California declare bankruptcy and default on their debt as the next catalyst. And so that terrifies the federal government and, uh, and leads them to have the conversation that you're, you and I are having right now. They'll say, well, you know, why are we, we don't have to give all this money directly to the banks. We'll give them some money, of course, but let's go in and buy some houses. You know, let's go to California and Illinois and just start pumping money into individuals and small businesses and see what they do with it because mm-hmm. uh, you know because it's risk free for us it's free it's just make believe money and and so if they do that then what would the effect be on the economy who knows i mean it would probably yeah. be inflationary in the short run Mm-hmm. And then, then you kind of shift the, the focus from the domestic economy to the foreign exchange markets, and maybe you mm-hmm. have a currency crisis, but who knows.
3: Yeah. yeah. These Very boundaries. interesting. Very interesting. John, we're going to have to go to a commercial break now, but we're going to come right back and, and talk about some of the topics in your book, uh, your book and James Turk's book called The Coming Collapse of the Dollar. So uh, don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back with John Robino after the commercial break.
2: Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit Visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's d-a-c-h-a-capital.com.
1: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by
0: voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome
1: to the human to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now,
3: back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have John Robino back with me. A uh, delightful discussion we're having so far, uh, mostly on this whole issue of inflation and deflation. If it seems like we're beating a dead horse, uh, let me just say that I think it's one of the most important issues that we have to face because it has so much to do with how we invest our money. If we're going into an inflationary environment, as John and I discussed, or as John has discussed you, you know, it would make sense to borrow money and pay off with cheaper dollars. But we don't know that and we don't know the timing. And and if in fact the ultimate run is towards a hyperinflation, we may have some gut wrenching deflationary episodes like the Lehman Brothers decline that we went through in 2008 2009 we might have more of those and that could just you know could cause you to lose everything you have and you're betting on so it's really a tricky business it's very very important i don't think that uh, i don't think that we are beating a dead horse because i think it's it's so important and john we were talking at the break a little bit about core inflation you know they take out food and energy from from core inflation uh, and, you know, we're hearing people even, you know, you're even observing that core inflation has trended down a little bit. So uh, but yet I don't live on core inflation. You know, I have to put gasoline in my car. i got to go to the grocery store. Uh, i got to buy health care, which is rising double digits every year. Uh, education is costing more money. Uh, where what is, what do you think our real inflation rate is? What is it? How much is it more is it costing to stay alive in America now than it did, say, last year?
4: Well, it, it's got to be considerably more than what the government says, because li- like you said, so many of life's necessities are, are up pretty dramatically. So it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if the real number was, was inching towards double digits. And just because you know gas is up dramatically and food, food costs are up, at least um, the inputs to food costs are up. I'm noticing uh, that some of the things I buy in the grocery store are actually down lately. Uh, but mm-hmm. the reason for that is probably because there's a time lag between, say, wheat going up by 30 or 40 or 50 percent or whatever it's gone up in the last six months and cereal prices going up. Because that wheat has to be bought and then turned into crackling oat bran or Wheaties or whatever and then mm-hmm. shipped to the grocery store. And there's a lag. But I don't see how you can have grain prices go go up dramatically and that not be reflected in the price of cereal and meat and bread and things like that, because that, that's the main mm-hmm. input for those things. So they can, they can squeeze their labor costs and, and substitute um, capital equipment for workers for a while, but they, they can't continuously offset dramatically rising input costs. So sooner or later in the U.S., if the grain prices that we're seeing now stick, you'll see higher food prices. And and then it'll be clear that uh, that the cost of living is going way up. And um, Mm -hmm. where where we're seeing the impact of this now, though, is in countries, um, in the developing world, where food is... Half of the daily budget, or whatever, and and when people who are already right on the edge of not being able to feed their family find out that uh, the, the prices of, of the basic foodstuffs that that they need to get by are up dramatically, and all of a sudden they can't feed their kids, and that's that's part of the reason you're seeing people in the streets now rather than three or four years ago, because their mm-hmm. lives have suddenly gotten unlivable, and that that kind mm-hmm. of thing, you know, if you've got starving kids, that will put you out in the street. You know, regardless of what your government is like, you're going to be mad and you're going to want somebody to do something about it. And so that anger is bubbling up around the world now. And uh, part of it is because food prices are up dramatically and fuel prices are up dramatically. So um, Mm -hmm. the question is, and now it gets really interesting because the governments of the world are still inflating. They're they're ignoring incipient signs of rising prices because they're more worried about um, unemployment. And a debt-driven collapse, and you know a regression of the 1930s. So they're they're willing to risk higher prices in order to to stave off all of that that bad deflationary stuff. And so the question is, what does that do to um, basic commodity prices going forward? I mean, if if we already have. Um, uh, double digit increases in a lot of the basic stuff that goes into um, the the food business and the energy business. And, and we're going to inflate further from here, and we're going to generate a global recovery so that u s consumer spending goes up, and you know u s. consumers buy more food and energy than anybody else in the world. and And so if that's going to happen, what does that do to food and energy prices? do they Do they really spike from here? And then what does that do to the rest of the world? And so we're mm-hmm. coming we're entering a really potentially unstable time where we we literally have a choice between a deflationary collapse in the near term or a serious spike in commodity prices, with all that mm-hmm. that implies. And, uh, and it doesn't seem like there's really an alternative there because if they if if the governments of the world start tightening, the financial system is so still so fragile, there's still so much variable rate debt out there that higher interest rates will will crush the you know the u s housing sector and by mm-hmm. implication the US banking sector and 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 send government revenues down and government spending up you know so so you get these um these second and third effects from a tightening mm-hmm. that would be perceived as disastrous by the world's governments but at the same time if you allow inflation to run wild um you you get another set of unacceptable effects and it doesn't seem like there's an mm-hmm. alternative it seems like those are the only two choices that we have left and um mm-hmm. And it could be that the market takes the choice out of our hands pretty soon. One kind or another Mm -hmm. um, of of disaster is going to happen, and it might be that uh, it's the opposite of what we're trying for. But who knows? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I think either way, we're in deep trouble. It
3: it, it really is. uh, It it really is really very, very important stuff. Now, your remarks just reminded me of something I heard this morning on Bloomberg Radio here in New York, which I usually listen to as I'm. Uh, getting ready for the day and having my breakfast, and they were talking about the United Kingdom having increased interest rates. Uh, I'm sorry, increased rates of inflation, uh, and you know the the central bank may want to in- allow rates to tighten up the money supply a little bit and let rates go up a bit to try to start uh, stave off inflation. But the big problem is that the economy is so weak yet that they don't feel you know that, that that's the downside of doing that. So it seems to me that we're in the same place in the United States. Clearly, if the you know, if if we start having inflation, I mean, let's say that the policymakers at the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics actually started to count inflation as they did pre-Regan, back in the days, uh, a long time ago, before they started playing all these games with hedonics and all kinds of other assumptions, that we that we really knew what the real inflation rate was, and it's eight or ten percent instead of one or two percent, which they're telling us, and then there would be a need, a political need, to start to uh, tighten. What would happen if we tightened right now? In the U.S. economy.
4: Can can you imagine tightening with unemployment, with official unemployment at 9% and real unemployment at 16 Mm. or 17%? (laughs) What that would mean Mm -hmm. politically? Because you you would have um, working people around the country, everybody who gets laid off from that point on, and everybody who can't find a job from that point on would blame you, because it would be clear that you, as the guy in charge, don't care about them, and you would Mm -hmm. lose those votes. And so no politician in their right mind is going to, try to slow the economy down to fight inflation when uh, when unemployment is this high. And that's the box we've put ourselves into. By borrowing so much money for the last 30 years, uh, we, we've left ourselves with um, interest payments, you know, debt servicing costs that are so high that it diverts so much money away from what would have previously been spent on productive activities that there's not much left for growth. And, you know, that's a country is no really no in in no way different from a person in this sense. if you borrow too much money um you've got to pay off that debt and you don't have much left over for other stuff and that's basically where we are and that 's why unemployment is so high because so much of our national income is now being diverted to debt service, which doesn't produce mm-hmm. anything doesn't put anybody to work it, it just disappears so we're we're hobbled by that, and the economy right now can't generate enough jobs to Put even uh, the current workforce to work, let alone all the new people coming into the workforce and thats that's just the way it is when you borrow so much money and so it, it leaves us with only bad choices but um, yeah it, it's unimaginable that the Fed would stop its current Policy of accommodation and start being restrictive right now, just because um, then you'd see people in the streets, <laughs> and they know that, so they're they're not going to stop. Yeah, unless the market. Well, John, is. I think you,
3: you you mentioned the debt service uh, robbing us of our quality of living or our our consumption capabilities now, but I would say also, and I think you would agree with me, but I'd like to to hear what you have to say that a good part of it is an, an Austrian economic concept of malinvestment. That is when you pump huge amounts of money into the economy, you cause you send signals uh, for bad investment. We saw it with the dot coms, the telecoms, of course, the collapse of that bubble, then in spades, we saw it with the housing bubble, uh, huge amounts of money going in, causing people to invest in ways and those investments are not throwing off cash they're not productive they're not able to service that debt so not only do you have an awful lot of debt, you don't have income to service that debt and I like to show a chart in my newsletter that shows the exponential growth of the total U.S. dollar debt, whereas income is growing in a linear fashion at best. Uh, Any thoughts on that?
4: I think you're absolutely right, Jay. Uh, The interest rate is basically the price of money, and a price is a signal. It tells you what to do. It tells you when when there's a shortage of something so you can invest to produce more of that, or when there's a a surplus of it so you pull back. Don't produce anymore because the price is unfavorable. And so what a, a low interest rate, tells people, and that the government has basically been using low interest rates as a policy tool for, for 30 years now, uh, a low interest rate tells you to go out and borrow more money and put that money to work. So what we've seen is a series of bubbles in the last 30 years where all this you know, these low interest rates have caused people to go out and buy whatever was hot. And so it was junk bonds back in the 1980s, and then tech stocks in in the 1990s, and then housing. And in each case, it was excessively easy money flowing from the government into the banking system. And the bankers had to do something with that money, so they lent to whatever seemed to have the best prospects at the time. But of course they overdid it because there was too much money being pumped out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're seeing that again with government debt. You know, you could make the case that we're we're in the middle of the last big bubble, which is the government debt bubble around the world. And mm-hmm. because governments are pumping out so much money, it's flowing into. Uh, Yen-denominated bonds and euro bonds and and uh, U.S. Treasuries and pushing interest rates down to unreasonable levels. You know, U.S. Treasuries at, at this rate, e- even if the bull market continues for a while longer, historians are still going to look back and go, "Oh my God!" You know, you, these governments were able to borrow for 30 years at. Three percent or four percent—that's just as crazy as um, you know a one-bedroom house in California going for a million dollars, or a Mm dot-com with a a PE ratio of two thousand or whatever. You know, these are all crazy prices that have been brought about by excessively easy money and extremely low interest rates. And so, when we look at it that way, there's no real difference between these different bubbles. It's all the same thing with all the same cause, and it's going to end the same way with a, giga- a gigantic crash in the asset that's being inflated.
3: Yeah, and we then we look at the uh, these economies that go bust because of this bad these bad policies and malinvestment and excessive debt, uh, and then when people become desperate, as we've seen um, on television in Egypt, people uh, as we were talking about a minute ago, they, they're not able to feed themselves or they're, you know, if you're, if you're facing starvation, you know, I imagine you could become pretty desperate and do some desperate things. Uh, and, and so, uh, that leads me to the question, where do you think people should start to, should people start to look to diversify if they're, if they're wealthy enough to start diversifying and putting money elsewhere around the world? And if so, do you have any ideas where they might, where they might go?
4: Yeah, well, well, in general, you definitely want to diversify, and more so in uncertain times. Mm-hmm. And probably it makes sense to diversify on the disaster end of the spectrum at this point, because we know bad stuff is going to happen. We just, in, in general, aren't 100% sure what the bad things will be. So you want to own precious metals, because th- those are the um, the forms of money that governments can't inflate away. So they're going to go up in value as we run the printing presses and force the value of, of paper currencies down. And you want to own other forms of real assets because they also, you know, oil can't be created in infinite quantities, farmland, etc. And at the same time, it might make sense to be betting against financial assets because those are the things that, um, that tend to be hurt most in periods of extreme instability you know you you just don't want to own paper because paper can evaporate we'll see a lot of different kinds of paper evaporate and we'll lose faith in other kinds of paper and so betting against things like that might make sense too and then as you said you want to diversify geographically because any one country can just spin out of control in this kind of a world even the u.s you know we could easily see Capital controls and wealth taxes and and all kinds of other crazy things that are designed by a desperate government to get as much of your wealth away from you as possible and trap you within the borders of the country in order to make it possible for them to get your wealth. So you want to be looking at um, storing some gold and silver in a vault in another country, like James Turk's gold money is uh, a service that will do that for you. And uh, you might also want to be looking at foreign real estate. Like like uh, you and and uh, Doug Casey are going to be discussing pretty soon in Argentina, and mm-hmm. so that's uh, that's a hard one for a lot of Americans, especially to to get their minds around because it, it's hard to envision land in another country because they speak other languages, they have different legal systems, and and you're far away from it, so you don't know what can happen to it. So you have to be very careful about buying real estate in other countries, and you have to do it with even more care than you would buy something here. You've got to have your own lawyers looking over the contracts, and you've got to make sure management companies are are there and honestly running your property for you. But um, even so, it's probably a good idea to own some land in another country. And there's there's a lot of attractive places out there that, that aren't subject to the same kinds of instability that the U.S. is. You know, parts of Latin America are basically cash economies, so they haven't been leveraged to the hilt like the U.S. and Europe and Japan have, been. and so they they won't collapse in the same way that we might collapse. So that that's a diversification, and parts sure. of Asia are actually they're they're running surpluses, they're building up um, um, wealth at the same time we're dissipating our wealth, and so mm-hmm. it's possible that Asian real estate will tend to hold its value even in the event of a dollar collapse. So they, those are the kind of things you want to be looking at. And um, as far as specifics go, I, I wouldn't be comfortable um, talking in, uh, about the, uh, that, because I, both because I'm not an expert on it and because uh, this is kind of a personal decision. So
3: sure, that's, that's absolutely. That's well, those I are... Yeah, well, those are some good, I think, good concepts, John. Thank you for sharing those with me. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about gold money. Your partner, your yeah. uh, your friend and partner, book writing partner, at least James Turk's gold money. And and by the way, I might tell our listeners that if you go to jtaylormedia.com, that's j a y t a y l o r media.com without the triple Ws, you go there. On the home page, you can click onto gold money, and we'll take you right through to. Ah, uh, James Turk's website, uh, and I, I don't know if you'd care to comment a little bit about gold money and and how you know that that product, John. If you'd like to,
4: sure. Um, James Turk has basically originally designed an alternate gold currency. In other words, you can uh, you can set up an account with gold money. Give give his company money. They will buy gold or silver bullion, put it in a an insured vault in London or Dubai or Zurich, and then allow you to spend, the, they call them gold grams, that's the unit that the currency is denominated in, you can spend it like cash or like a credit card. And uh, th- that function is still there, but lately people have been using gold money more as just a storage service, because it's it's safe, it's cheap, it's an easy way to diversify geographically instantly. You know, You just send them some money, and boom, you've got um bullion sitting in a vault that's outside the the border of your country the IRS can't get to it and so it's growing dramatically and um uh, because James Turk is a, is an ex banker and he's just ideologically wedded to the idea of sound money um mm-hmm. he he's put the uh the best possible controls into his system for storing and protecting gold and so uh, the odds are that it isn't something that's going to be lost through hacking or, or confiscation or other kinds of problems. You know, the, the vaults are insured, they're, they're um, you know, treasury-grade vaults in legitimate banking centers. And, and so I have a gold money account, and and I'm as certain as I can be about anything like that, that that is the the relatively risk-free part of my portfolio. You know, I don't worry about anything mm-hmm. happening to it. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a legitimate diversification for somebody who wants to move money overseas and I think it's definitely something worth looking at
3: All right well it certainly is uh it certainly is convenient we've had uh, James Turk uh, to talk about it on this show um, uh, and uh, and it certainly is a convenient way I think uh, there's maybe five currencies or maybe more than that by this time that you can actually sell your gold and exchange it into those currencies and have uh, and have the proceeds wired into your account uh, so it's it's fairly it's fairly uh easy to do. Uh, w- in terms of um ETFs uh owning gold. I guess that's what we're talking about now. What's the best way to own gold or silver? You by the way you can buy silver, I think platinum too. Uh platinum group metals or platinum at least in in gold money as well, is that right? Yes. And okay. Would, now, wh- what about some of the other ways? You were a trader uh, for several years at least. What about uh, some of the other ways to own gold or to invest or to speculate in gold? Let's say, uh, what about ETFs? How do they stack up compared to, say, gold money?
4: Well, the, the ETFs have become hugely popular lately because they're so convenient. You can buy and sell them like a stock. You know? So it's a mouse click. Boom gold, but Mm -hmm. you don't actually own gold with an ETF, because they they have extremely loose um, custodial rules, which, um, without going into the details, make it possible for them to say they have X amount of gold and silver in their vaults and not really have it. So you don't necessarily own actual bullion when you buy a gold or silver ETF. So those things are primarily trading vehicles. If you want to make a quick bet on gold or silver going up or down... You can buy these ETFs, or you can short them, and then you get instant exposure. and uh, And so, in that sense, it's it's definitely a, a useful thing to understand and sometimes to play with. But it's not your gold holding; that's not your bullion. So don't think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, you can also, if you if you actually want to own real physical bullion, you can you can also have a bank in Switzerland or London or someplace. Um, keep allocated gold for you in a vault. The the allocated is the key term here. That means um, they've allocated that bullion sitting in that vault to you. It's yours. And so they they charge you higher fees for that, but it's actually your bullion. And so you aren't in any danger of, uh, say, the bank going bust and you ending up being an unsecured creditor, which is the way it works with a lot Mm -hmm. of these certificates or with an ETF or something like that, where where you, you have paper that represents gold but it's not really necessarily the bullion you might just end up with nothing when you think that's the risk-free part of your portfolio and Mm -hmm. some other ways to um, to participate in precious metals are the the mining stocks especially the junior miners now because basically what's happening in the in the mining world is the the um, the big established gold and silver miners are they're producing a lot of gold and silver right now, but they're not replacing the, that, those resources in the ground as quickly as they're, they're pulling it out. So they, they face the prospect of shrinking if they don't get more reserves. And they're, so they're looking around at these junior miners that have found legitimate reserves, proved that they exist, and are trading at a, a pittance compared to the bullion that they have in the ground. And mm-hmm. so what, what we'll probably see in the future is a buyout wave, as the big guys buy out the small guys at nice premiums. So the, the junior miners, if gold and silver hold up, are, are probably going to be great investments going forward.
3: I couldn't agree with you more, John. And I'm not saying that because most of our sponsors of this show are the junior gold mining companies. It may seem convenient for me to agree with you, but actually, the reason the sponsors are on this show, and the reason one of the reasons that I have this show, is because I want to tell people about this opportunity among the junior mining companies. I couldn't agree with you more. Ian MacAvity has been a guest on this show, and he's pointed out that in these great bull markets, as has Bob Hoy, has also made this point, that in these great bull markets in gold. Gold. the senior mining companies don't do all that well they do pretty good but they they have problems replacing the the production and they're not particularly good at finding the gold so where the real wealth is made is in the juniors those guys that are finding a million and multi-million ounce deposits uh, and and i think this is the most exciting part of this bull market is in the is in the junior sector you know we wanted to get to the coming collapse of the dollar and how to profit from it we're almost out of time we got a minute or so left so there's really not time to do justice for that we're going to have to have you back again sometime in the near future if you're willing to come on but oh. let me just ask you uh john if uh, the uh, where can can people still buy this book it was published i think 2007 or uh, 2004 yeah well can people still buy now. the
4: book sure Oh yeah, it's still on Amazon. It's still selling pretty well, and in, in, in part because the um, the story is still there. You know, nothing has really changed except the numbers are all bigger. <laughs> you know, back when we wrote the original 2004 version, gold was 400 bucks an ounce, and then when we did the yeah. the updated paperback version in 2008, gold had gone to seven or eight hundred, and and silver was you know was four dollars to begin with, and I think eight or nine dollars when um, the the second book came out. So all the charts. Um, have these really low numbers on them because since that time the story has kind of worked out and gold and silver through the roof and all the financial crises that the, the book predicted originally ha- have begun at least. You know, we, we still have the currency collapse out there, which is the main thrust of the, the analytical part of the book so it, the story is still good because we haven't had the global currency collapse yet and that's mm-hmm. that's the main prediction of the book so it's still coming so you you know you can read the book and 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 uh-huh. uh, even though the the gold and silver numbers are way up everything else is still completely valid and uh, right. that, that's so probably
3: why it's still so valid. the bull market remains intact i'd like to just read very quickly a quote yeah. in that book from richard russell he says three or four and this was a night 19- 2004 he says three or four or five years from now we'll look back at today's price of four hundred dollar gold and ask ourselves where the devil were we what were we thinking about gold at four hundred dollars was cheaper than dirt why didn't we recognize this back in the year 2003 and end of quote so many people not relatively a relatively small number of people but a lot of people that i know did recognize that did buy gold uh, ten years ago because they could understand that what was going on with the policymakers uh... in washington the federal reserve and the likelihood uh, that that what they were doing was going to lead to this crisis point down the road and this is the whole purpose of our show is to help people understand what are the reasons underneath the surface that's causing all of our trouble because you're certainly not getting the truth from the mainstream media for the most part so i want to thank you john so much for coming on today and sharing your views with us i think they were very very good i i, I of course, I say that I'm largely in agreement with you, uh, and I hope that you can come back with us sometime in the near future. And maybe we can have James Turk and you both on at the same time. I'm sure it can be arranged. So if you're interested, we'd like to have you back. Yeah, let's
4: do it. Thanks, Jay.
3: Let's do. Let's do it. Well, thank you, folks. Don't go away. I'm going to be right back with my partner Roger Wiegand. We're going to talk a little bit about Roger's views of the markets, and then later on. Uh, in the next hour, we're going to have Doug Casey with us and some more companies to talk to, uh, to, uh, to tell us about what they're up to. So don't go away. We'll be right back.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy op- Opportunity pass by. Western Pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major, world-class deposits in the Western United States. Western's ace in the hole, a project called Mineral Gulch, lies along trend with the Carlin-style Long Canyon deposit, recently acquired by Frontier Development. Catalyst going forward will be from drill results. One drill campaign is underway at the South Leda Project in Nevada, with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at Mineral Gulch. Western Pacific trades on the Venture Exchange under the ticker WRP.
2: Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Soladin Gold
0: is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Shawindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property, and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project, and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit ww.soladin.com to to learn more Peterville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find...